You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, November 26th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, folks. I want to wish you all a very happy Hanukkah and a happy Thanksgiving this week. Thank you, Evan. Thanksgiving Nukkah. Thanksgiving Nukkah. What is this? Hanukkah? What what does Hanukkah mean? Jewish Festival of Lights. Really, Jay? I'm, look, I know what it means. I'm, you know, there's people out there that don't. It's the, an educational show. The word, Come on. The word okay. Hanukkah means dedication. And uh, the mm-hmm. name is supposed to remind us all that the holiday commemorates the rededication of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem following the Jewish victory over the Syrian Greeks way back in 165 BCE. But mm-hmm. what we're going to, what I'd like to mention tonight is that Hanukkah is falling, uh, the day, the first day of Hanukkah is falling on Thanksgiving, um, which is a rarity. In fact, it's so rare that it is not. How rare is it? The next time that this will happen, assuming there's no major changes in either calendar, the Jewish calendar or the Gregorian calendar, between now and then, the year 79,811 will be the next time this merging of the holidays occurs. Really? I'd like to put my nickel down and say that there are going to be some major calendrical changes to both of those. Before 79,000 AD? I would think so. I assume we'll all be lizards by then. Lizard people. Lizard people. Super intelligent lizard people with robotic yeah. arms. Yeah. We'll be more locked in. A David Icke sort of vision of the future. <laughs> like Slee Stack. Yes. Oh, a Jewish Slee Stack. I like yeah. it. All right. So I'm going to formally change my show name to Chaka right now. <laughs> Chaka. You got it, Chaka. Can I call you Chaka Khan? <laughs> You can call me Chaka Doodle. Uh, we're off to a bad start here. Bad start. And I'm sorry, it's only going to get slightly more depressing. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but let's take this as a, a celebration for this day in history. I had one thing to talk about for Saturday, but today that we happen to be recording, which is November 26th, Tuesday, today is the birthday of Mike LaSalle, who, of course, longtime listeners may know as... Probably our all-time champion, biggest fan of SGU, mm-hmm. who set up uh, SGUfans.net and kept track of every episode before he befriended us. And particularly you guys, you would go visit in Connecticut and do nerdy things with. And <laughs> yeah. he played. Uh, we had we had an online guild together oh, yes. in Rift. Yep. The whole deal and. Sadly, Mike passed away last year, uh, far too soon. Yeah. And he will always be missed by everybody here at SGU. Definitely. Yeah. I, um, it was, well, so it was his birthday. So I wrote a little note on there on Facebook. I, I rarely do that, but I, I think about Mike every day and I just wanted to say something nice about him. Well, he's, yeah, he was a great he's guy. family. There's no doubt about it. So with that in mind, Mike would probably want us to go on and have an awesome show where Jay, finally is funny for the first time ever. Silly or funny? <laughs> I do my best. You can always hope. <laughs> whichever. Whichever. But, you know, funny would be best. <laughs> uh, so, hmm. oh my God. as for, as for uh, the day that this comes out in history, 
Today is the day that marks the day in 1954, November 30th, 1954, that was the first and possibly only documented case of a human being being hit by a rock from space. It happened in Alabama. It is now known as the Hodges meteorite, so named after the woman who was smacked with it. It left an enormous bruise on her that is that can be found online. It looks quite painful. She had just been napping on her sofa in the afternoon, covered up with several blankets when the meteorite fell and actually it was it was originally a much larger meteorite, but a piece of it broke off and went through her roof, hit a radio, bounced off of it, and hit Hodges as she napped on the couch. So she was badly bruised, but able to get to the hospital herself to have it checked out. And what followed was a custody battle uh, over the meteorite. The Hodges, uh, well, first, the authorities came in and scooped it up. This was, of course, the height of Cold War terror. And uh, so they wanted to check it out, make sure it was truly just a random rock from space. Yeah, not something from the Ruskies, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Hodges and her husband uh, asked to have it back. But also their landlord, a woman named Birdie Guy, also uh, said that she deserved it because it was her land, which technically, apparently, legally at the time, she was in the right. It landed on her land and the meteorite belonged to her. Uh, she went to court over it. She ended up settling. I think she got like $500 in exchange for the Hodges being able to keep the meteorite. They then tried to sell it, but by the time they got hold of it, apparently interest had died down quite a bit. They couldn't get rid of it. And eventually, uh, Mrs. Hodges, over the objections of her husband, apparently ended up donating it to the Alabama Museum of Natural History, which I think still has it today. Yes, they still have it. And it's worth $54 million. No. no. <laughs> Don't. There are other cases where people claim to have been hit by by meteorites, but this is the best documented example. Uh, the next best example was one from 1992. Um, a meteorite, like a small f bit of a meteorite, apparently hit a young Ugandan boy, but I couldn't really find much documentation on well, that. Well, there's actually a published, I found that, I found a published report. Did you? Because I found a, I found a report on the Meteorite, but I didn't see anything about it hitting the Well, boy. yeah, the, the report on the – because the meteorite broke up into a lot of different pieces. They gathered as many of those pieces as they could, I guess, to study how it broke up and, you know, how, what the what the pieces looked like and everything. And in the report, it mentions the, the Ugandan boy who claimed to have been hit on the head by a small piece. And they actually even – there's a picture of him holding the fragment and they oh, okay. give the size of the fragment. So what happens to you? How fast is it going? Like, did it knock him out? Knock his teeth out? Like, well, it, was only, it only weighed three point six grams. The the piece that hit him. Apparently, it was slowed significantly by the leaves of a banana plant. See, hmm. you all mocked <laughs> me for having all those banana plants in my house. 
But just oh, is that what you're doing? You were just protecting <laughs> yourself. They, they doubled right? yeah. meteorite shield. A meteorite That's umbrella. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who's laughing? You know, when now? cops raid your house, thinking you have some sort of pot operation going, mm-hmm. please don't tell them that they're just banana plants to protect you from the meteorites. <laughs> That's right. The Hodges meteorite, which is also known as the Silicauga meteorite, because that's the name of the the place in Alabama where it landed. It was the size of a grapefruit, wow. apparently. But you should see the bruise that left on this poor woman. She was... It was she, ugly. She didn't, she didn't. Wait, Rebecca, if I was standing next to you and I threw a grapefruit at you, I would do more than bruise you. I mean, this is this is a rock. It didn't knock her face off? Like, nothing crazy happened? Well, it hit her, like, in the, yeah. in the leg. And it bounced off the radio yeah. first, so... That's yeah, and it had bounced off a radio. A, no banana trees or anything to help. No banana plants. You see. Same. All right. Well, for this next news item, we're going to be joined by Elliot Goldman. Elliot, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, thanks, Rogues. It's great to be here. So, Elliot, you're on because you work for Lockheed Martin, and you were involved in the Maven satellite, which was just launched to uh, to Mars. Maven. <laughs> and. <laughs> Yeah, trying, you uh, kindly invited us down to see the launch, and I was able to make it down there with my family. So we met you down there. We had a great time. Fantastic time. Thanks for coming down. I really enjoyed your visit. So yeah, so we're going to talk about the Maven launch really quickly. So let me give a little bit of background, then you can tell us about what your your part of the uh, the satellite was. So Maven stands for the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Probe, and this is a uh, was just launched. On November 18th, everything went well, and it's on its way to Mars. It'll get there in about 10 months, and then it will go into a very eccentric orbit around ours, around Mars, so it can sample the different levels of the atmosphere. So the, the primary purpose of this probe is to find out why Mars lost its dense atmosphere. Um, we know that Mars must have had a denser atmosphere billions of years ago because there was liquid water on the surface of Mars and you need a certain amount of air pressure for that to happen. But uh, the solar wind has since blown most of it away. But the, the purpose of the probe is to find out exactly or more information about what, what happened to Mars's atmosphere. Apparently, it's also going to be a relay sort of communication satellite for the rovers that are still on the surface of Mars as well. But you were involved in – so Lockheed Martin didn't make any of the scientific instruments, if I understand correctly, but they made the probe itself. So what was your part of making the probe? Uh, yeah, that's great. We, we built the, the bus, the structure, and the, the computers, the avionics that fly it, and we also operate it. But we don't build the payloads. The payloads are built elsewhere. Uh, my specific job was designing the solar array substrates. I worked on some RF components called waveguides. Um, worked on the uh, mechanisms that deploy the solar arrays mm-hmm. and uh, uh, designed a bracket for the star trackers, which are these fancy Italian star cameras that are super expensive and they're, they're mounted and, and look at space and, and give us kind of precise knowledge of position. Right. See, I remember we were right after the launch, everyone was celebrating, but you had to hold your breath until the solar panels un- opened up because that was your bit. If that didn't work, yeah, that yeah. would have been a problem for you. Would you have been fired if that didn't work? <laughs> Probably not, actually. There's, <laughs> oh, okay. there's someone above me I think I could pass the blame to. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, I would, you, I'd probably be under a little bit of scrutiny if we had a failure. I worked on the, the, um, the, what's called the R&R, the restraint and release devices for the arrays. And I redesigned something we had built in the past. And so the design was a little bit novel, um, thanks to me. So if there was a failure, huh. um, I would probably be called in to speak about it. But yeah, it's, uh, 
it was it was an exciting uh, exciting thing to work on. Yeah, the launch day was really exciting. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, beyond just watching a, a huge rocket take off like that. So the the weather was a little bit dodgy. They they were giving a sixty percent chance that the rocket was going to launch. So we didn't know until four minutes before the rocket took off whether or not. It was actually going to happen. What time did it launch, Steve? It was one thirty-eight in the afternoon, local time, right? Or, or one twenty-eight, yeah. one of those. And uh, it was really exciting. So you, heard, you know, while you're sitting on the the benches, we're just across the bay from several of the launch areas, the launching pads, including the one with the Maven on it. We're sitting there, and at some point, they're they're talking the whole time. There's you know speakers set up that, so we're hearing people over the speakers. Sometimes they were talking to us. Sometimes we're just hearing the, the NASA chatter happening. At one point, they do the the go no go, where like there's 30 people that all have to give a go oh, from yeah. their station, I and we're hearing part. them we're hearing them read off each bit, and everyone either saying go or no go, and they go all the way down to the guy who's in charge of the whole thing uh-huh. gives the final go. So of course, when when he said you know that the mission was a go, and they restart the clock because they stopped the clock at four minutes for for a, ten minutes to get caught up on everything. Then they restart the clock at four minutes. That was really the first moment where we knew a hundred percent that it was going to launch and it was so exciting. It was incredible. Oh, they did that for dramatic effect. Yeah, well it had a dramatic right, do it effect. Every time. Yeah. Hey, so what's it like being on the other side of that when you're are you in the um you know the, the, the station where they're controlling everything and what's it like? No, I was down there on vacation with my family. I my work is done primarily once we built the structure and delivered it to our assembly team. We call them ATLO, Assembly Test and Launch Operations. And once the, once the spacecraft's being assembled, uh, my work is done and I'm on to the next spacecraft. So I was just down with Steve taking personal time. But I heard from my colleagues that were on console at that time. So what's the next spacecraft? I'm working on OSIRIS-REx right now, which is an asteroid sample return mission. Cool. That's a great name. Yeah. It's a mighty name. Osiris Rex. Egyptian, yeah. I don't know. I, don't uh, quiz me on the acronyms because I won't be able to tell you what they are. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Steve, I said, you probably don't want to interview me. You want to interview a systems engineer, someone who knows the whole spacecraft pretty intimately. I have a really narrow focus. I'm a mechanical engineer, and I do design for structures and mechanisms, deployables, things like that. You're like um, Howard Wallowitz. Who's Howard Wallowitz? <laughs> Who's Howard Wallowitz? <laughs> Big Bang Theory, come on. Oh, um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome reference, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Losers. I think he listens to the show. <laughs> For Osiris, you're, you were telling me that you're, you're building the thing that's going to actually allow the probe to make contact with the comet? Yeah, well, I'm working on a, on a piece of the spacecraft called the sample return capsule. And that returns the sample once it's acquired back to Earth. It's, so it's its own small spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, about three foot diameter, um, kind of conic shape, and and it uh, hinges open, and it accepts the sample head. So we've got a sample head that touches the asteroid, and it's kind of like a fancy space vacuum, and samples up some of the regolith, and then this head is stowed into the sample return capsule, um, and then separated. And I'm working on the latching mechanisms that uh, capture it. I'm working on that entire capsule that then goes back to Earth. It must be so cool to have something that you built, like, on its way to Mars. Ah, uh, it's fantastic. It's super fantastic. I'll tell you one of the proudest moments of my career. I worked on the uh, Phoenix Mars lander, and I got to work on some mechanisms that were on the deck. 
and uh, so they're visible from the camera. And the day it lands, it sends back a self-portrait. And I think it was the second image it sent, and it was a, the first full-color image that showed the lander deck, and it panned up to the horizon. And right there, gleaming in the center of the picture, was this mechanism I designed. Oh, cool. awesome. That's really cool. Had you scratched your initials into it? Uh, I did not, no. Although some of the techs do that, believe it or not. <laughs> some of the techs may or may not do that. They, uh, <laughs> well, they've been known to sign a document when it's on top of the lander surface, or I'm sorry, the lander or the vehicle's um, panel, and they have the, the top surface of the panel often has a, an aluminum skin for discharge of, of you know, built-up electrical charge. And so their names will be captured in this foil, this aluminum foil. Yeah, I would say totally that. It's kind of frowned upon, oh, yeah. but it has been done uh, by accident, of course. Of course, yeah. yes. An oversight. I slipped with while carrying the Sharpie, and I accidentally drew <laughs> And I accidentally signed it, so oopsie. <laughs> you won't find my name, but I think okay. some texts have done it. You know, on the Phoenix Mars lander, if you look at some of the initial pictures sent back from some of the instruments, um, the science team often has little Easter eggs hidden in their components. And so under the... I think it was in the Met, there was a chemistry, a wet cell chemistry instrument that also had a small uh, microscope. And the first slide of the microscope was this little commemorative plaque for one of their colleagues who had passed on. And it was kind of a really special tribute. So people mm-hmm. have done things like that. But generally, it's kind of frowned upon in the industry. To add your personal touch. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of through, you know, art, you know, you've got a little artistic license when you're designing and so you'll create things in, in, in a way that, that kind of might have your hallmark. If you look out on the end of the solar array for Maven, I, w- I was the designer for the, the panels, and the, the profile of the panels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sun sensor is, sits on that. Uh, there's a small triangular boom for the sun sensor, and you, you'll notice a nested triangle within that triangular boom that I put in there to route harness through. So there's just a little bit of artistry you can you can uh, you can mm-hmm. add to your designs not not too often you know things are often you know need to be affordable and cheap but uh, if you you design with a flair some folks uh, appreciate it right Elliot how does a person get into the industry of designing things that are going to be shot into space I I would recommend being a mechanical engineer that's how I got into it <laughs> I. I went through a, a master's program at the University of Colorado, which was conveniently located nearby Lockheed Martin, and I did an internship with them. And I learned a lot of their software at the school. So I would just say, you know, plan ahead and, and make sure you learn the tools of the industry. Um, I'm now, you know, working with alumni groups at my university to, to help their steering committees, you know, select the right engineering tools that help their students um, you know, place better in industry. In your career, like how often do you get to be a part of a team that's sending something into space? Um, well, generally every two years or year and a half, I'm on a new spacecraft. I started with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter um, back in 04, and because Earth and Mars line up every two years, we're generally working on a, uh, you know, a Mars spacecraft every two years. And so I've worked on... Um, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, I've worked on Phoenix Mars Lander, worked on uh, the Hubble Servicing Mission, uh, Mars Science Laboratory Aeroshell, Juno Orbiter, um, which is a, a Jupiter probe, and you know, Maven. I've done uh, 
some work on the GOES-R and GOES-S spacecraft. I got to design a, an instrument chassis for a magnetometer. So you, in, in my industry, you do get to kind of work on a number of spacecraft. You know, I, I deployed some computer code to some servers in the United Kingdom today. <laughs> Is that on Mars? One, wow. one hell of a launch, Bob. Elliot, you ever play Kerbal Space Program, the game? No, I haven't. Oh God! All right, sorry to, to derail this conversation, but this game is epic. It's you actually build your own rockets and you put instrumentation on them. And you send them into orbit and you can you could travel to the moon and to other planets in the solar system with a real crew and you run the whole thing. It, not a so real. So it's a simulation. Crew. Well, not real, but you know, in the game, it's a simulation. It's, but the graphics are fantastic. It's just you know, I figure anybody that's doing anything space oriented like you would love this type of game. Well, I don't know. I mean. <laughs> If he's doing that all day at work, <laughs> he just wants to come home and relax. Well, I guess that, that, that's a good point. Yeah, you don't want to play a game where you're playing a simulation of being a mechanical engineer working in the aerospace industry? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much sit in front of a CAD terminal eight, nine hours a day doing design work. and There's a lot of details and, you know, kind of paperwork to go along with it, too. You know, there's changes that need to be made and approvals that we need to find, so it's parts lists and things like that, ordering things ahead of time. So there's, it's not always glamorous in the space industry, but right. I, I must admit, I love my job. I love going to work every day and, and I have uh, really great people to work with. I work in a civil space group. So we work on NASA, NOAA spacecraft, things that we get to talk about. Cool. So it's kind of nice. My buddies that work in the cloaked areas don't get to tell me what they do. So Ooh. They don't, you don't get bragging rights. All right, well, Elliot, thanks so much for inviting us down to the launch. It was great. My daughters loved it. They had such a great time. Great. Yeah, sorry, you sorry the rest of us couldn't make it. Glad you guys it. enjoyed it. Yeah. I learned a lot about Steve. Did you know Steve is bananas for bananas? Oh, yeah. Oh. No, it never comes Oddly up. Oddly enough, we did. It's funny that you say that. When you listen back to the show, you'll know why. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's cool. True. Yeah, it was really great getting to meet you, Steve, and your family, and say, say hello to them for me and my kids. All right, same here. Good talking with you, Elliot. Excellent. You Thanks, Elliot. All right. Well, Rebecca, there was a celebrity death this past week that I think our listeners might expect us to chat about a bit. There was indeed. Well, I, yeah, I think it was it was last week, but we recorded a little bit too early to catch it, so mm -hmm. we're. I did. I did throw in a quick mention that we were going to talk about it this week. Uh, okay. Uh, so yes, psychic Sylvia Brown has passed away at the age of seventy-seven. Of causes as yet unknown, undisclosed. Undisclosed, we should say, yeah. 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 Someone knows. Um, someone yeah. knows, just not us. Mm. Several, uh, points about this. No, she did not see it coming. Har, har. <laughs> there, there are a million skeptic jokes that have already circled the globe, uh, before the news had, had gotten very far. So, uh, we won't go into all of those, but one, one point worth mentioning, I think, is that she did tell Larry King years ago, back in 2003, that she was going to live until the age of 88. So, as I said in my YouTube video last week about this topic, she died the way she lived by royally screwing up psychic predictions. <laughs> yeah. I think her, most recent uh, screw up before choosing when she was going to die would have probably been the woman who she said was dead, who was actually kidnapped in that Cleveland house of horrors oh, yeah. rape house. Amanda Berry. Yes. 
That was probably the last big ticket item. But prior to that, there were dozens and dozens of high profile cases that she got wrong telling grieving families that their children were dead or sold into sex slavery or stripping in Hollywood. And in every single case, she was absolutely 100% wrong. Yeah. And her excuse is that uh, only God gets everything right. How can, I mean, how can she, she wasn't even on the odds. Like she wasn't even batting 500 right. when it came to living versus dead. She was an embarrassing failure of a psychic. And in that way, I think has a lot to teach us about how willing people are to believe anybody when they are in desperate need right. of some hope. Right. Have you ever read John Ronson's article in The Guardian from 2007? Yeah, about Sylvia the Brown. Sylvia Brown cruise. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the best articles ever written about Sylvia. Yeah. Brown. Oh, yeah. She. I mean, really, she's such a horrible person. Jeez. I mean, and you know, John Ronson is is a, a pretty objective investigative journalist, and he's just wants to, you know he gives people a chance. He'll talk to anybody. Just the tale that he has to tell is amazing. Uh, he, he reports one woman telling of. Um, so this is hearsay, but it's in Ronson's article where Sylvia Brown was giving a reading and a woman asked her about her future, or that she's sick and wanted to know if she was going to get better. And and, and uh, Sylvia Brown said, yeah, you're going to be dead in two years. Oh, my gosh. The woman breaks down crying and had to be, like, helped away from the situation. Can you imagine what telling nerd? somebody they're going to be dead in two years? I wa wandered into one of Sylvia's shows once. It was... When I was living in Boston, I saw she was at the Heinz Convention Center and I thought, well, I'll just go by and see what's going on. There was just, there was nobody at the door. So I just walked in and I was like looking around and then the show started. So I just sat down and so I didn't pay to see her. Um, unlike everyone else, they were paying like a hundred to three hundred dollars, I think, per ticket, depending on how close you were to the stage. Uh. And the, at one point they did a, they do a drawing uh, where the tickets all go into a bucket and they pull them out and call your number. And if your number is called, you get to line up on the side of the stage and ask Sylvia Brown one question. And it amazed me. Like, this was an audience of thousands. I mean, it was a Whoa. huge uh, place. And, you know, so the chances that you get called are pretty minimal. Um, and people paid a lot of money to be mm -hmm. there. So you must imagine that they're going to ask something really important. But most of them were asking things like, how many angels do I have around me? Oh, and Sylvia Brown would take a pull off her cigarette, <laughs> lean into the microphone and say, seven. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> next question. And then they would move on. <laughs> but one woman got up and said, my husband died and I would like to reach out to him. But First, just to make sure that I know that it's him who is talking to you, can you first ask him, where was the first place that we had the sex talk with our kids? And Sylvia Brown was just, just stared at her for a while and then said something. I, I don't recall exactly what she said, but something like it was outside by a tree. And the woman just looked completely crestfallen and started saying no. And then she was hustled away uh, by the handlers. handlers and her microphone handed uh, to the next She person. was waiting for her people to get in position wow. before she answered. Yeah. It's yeah. pathetic. Yeah, someone asked a real question. Better get them out of here. No one pulled the Groucho right. question. What's what, the Groucho question? What's the capital of South Dakota? 
Yeah. <laughs> when Groucho has to has to uh, a medium oh. in, a, in a seance. Who quote unquote knows all. Yes, because she can oh, access funny. the Akashic file. So he stood up and said, what's the capital of South Dakota? And he said he had, I mean, he had Pierre, to run right? from an it's angry mob <laughs> yeah. oh, out Pierre. of there. <laughs> That's you great. Know, I, I've got an image of her just laughing herself to sleep every night. Thinking, look, you know, look what I'm doing, and look yeah. what, how much money I'm making. Right on her pillow and of money. Just, well, she, oh she's, re, you know, her ex-husband told the tale to Robert Lancaster, you know, who wrote Stop Sylvia, ran the Stop Sylvia website, mm-hmm. that she said, yeah, if anyone's dumb enough to believe this stuff, they deserve to be taken. Oh, Whoa. Yeah. Oh, what a quote. Yeah, she, wow. Person. Without a doubt, knew what she was doing. Yeah, she didn't care. She was convicted, or she was indicted on several fraud charges years and years ago, and it's the reason why she has an E on the end of her name, because she was born Sylvia Brown, B-R-O-W-N, but after being indicted on fraud charges, she added the E in the hopes of escaping attention mm-hmm. as being a convicted fraudster. Yeah. She, she was a grief vampire. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, she agreed to be tested for the million dollar challenge, but that was what like 10 years ago yep. now something. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, the the way the way I put it in my video about the idea of of celebrating her death or whether it's too soon to talk about all the horrible things she's done. I I think that, you know, Sylvia Brown made her living twisting the memories of people's dead loved ones. So, I think that as skeptics, the best way that we can mark her passing is by making sure that she is remembered exactly, honestly, as she was, mm-hmm. which is as a fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, we, we, we've been talking about her throughout, you know, the show over the years. It's not like this is the first time we decided to criticize her. No. It is, I, you know, we do, I do think that it's important for skeptics to be the memory of, of, of like the cultural memory of things like this and to see that her legacy is accurate, you know, so that, cause you know that the, the, her fans are going to try to idolize her and oh, yeah. turn her into something in death even more than she was in life. And the, the mundane details of her, of her scam need to be remembered. It is sad that because of who she was, you know, we're almost sort of obligated to talk about her and her passing. I'd rather actually be talking about somebody like Frederick Sanger, who yeah. also passed away this past week, who's on November 19th. And he's in a, relation to Margaret. He's a British biochemist who won two Nobel Prizes in chemistry. Only one of three scientists who have ever been awarded two Nobel Prizes in the right. sciences. Right. And, and the only one to get two in chemistry. Yeah. An incredible scientist, incredible uh, contributions to our understanding of biochemistry. So we'll talk about him more at the – because it's so close to the end of the year. We always do our yeah. look back at you know, at the people we lost over the past year. So we'll talk about Sanger again for the year-end wrap-up show. But I just wanted to bring up that yeah, actually no. more important people passed away this, That's this week. That's a great point, Steve. I mean, you know, what, what better contrast could you have between yeah. real science and anti-science in Sylvia Brown. Yet you go ahead and you ask someone on the street. Everybody's heard of Sylvia Brown. Unfortunately, not enough yeah. people heard of Frederick Sanger. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, this is unfortunately another another dark news item that we're going to talk about yeah. uh, on the heels of Sylvia Brown. This is another death by pseudoscience, Evan. So, yep. News from Canada not too long ago, a few days ago, following an eight-month investigation into the death of a young boy back in March of 2013. Police in Calgary 
have arrested a woman on charges of criminal negligence because her son died as a result of her failure to provide the necessities of life for her seven-year-old son. Uh, Tamara Lovett is the mother. She's charged and was taken into custody. Um, she had denied her son. Her son's name is Ryan. She denied Ryan conventional medical treatment for a strep infection. Instead, she insisted on treating him with homeopathic medicine, and Ryan succumbed to what would have been an easily treatable illness. Um, detectives believe that Ryan was bedridden for 10 days before suffering a seizure. And when the emergency crews were on site on March 2nd to respond to him having uh, this horrible seizure, there was little they could do for him, and they rushed him off by ambulance, but it was too late. He was uh, dead, pronounced dead on arrival. Acting Staff Sergeant Mike Cavilla of the uh, Calgary Police uh, summed it up pretty well. He said it was a belief system in homeopathic medicine that contributed to this death. It should absolutely serve as a warning to other parents. The message is simple. If your child is sick, take them to the doctor. Yeah, it was Streptococcus pyogenes was the bacteria, which is a serious ba- infection. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, his That's a flesh uh, family, eating. That's a flesh-eating disease. Yeah, they call it the quote-unquote flesh-eating. I, I don't really like that term. It's yeah. a little – it's a lot. Hyperbole. Why? That, doesn't they don't eat flesh? Like what's it's happening? A, it's hyperbole. You know, it's just it's just a aggressive. But you know, if it if you if you get a serious skin infection, it can erode it away. But flesh eating is just is not, it's just not really an accurate description. Hmm. It's a it's a headline kind of description. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, I mean, yeah, it's a serious bacterial infection. In fact, the, the family was given antibiotics in case they they caught it from Ryan uh, as a as a preventive or a prophylactic course of antibiotics and, but totally treatable, you know, it's not a, not a particularly resistant strain. He would have been fine if he just got timely antibiotics. So it's a very sad, sad case. I'm trying to understand where the parent could possibly be coming from. You know, I have a nine and a half month old child and of course I believe in real medicine. You know, I believe mm-hmm. in, in everything that goes behind it, the science and the way that we do research and the results and the processes that we have. But even if you don't believe in that, at some point you're trying the homeopathic remedies because that's the thing that you believe in and it's not working and your son is getting more and more sick as the days roll by. How, how, how did that person not decide to call in the doctors? Yeah. It's unfathomable. Uh, right. Well, you know, I can't believe I, I can't believe that the parents wanted this outcome. Of course, well, not. What, what it what it does it it goes to show you the extremes that pathological thinking can bring you, mm-hmm. and that's the bottom line. They they their thought processes were so messed up, they were thinking so uncritically that that's that's what happened. And you know, I also think it it highlights the fact that belief in a lot of these alternative modalities is often equivalent to religious faith. It, it is a religious belief system. Yeah. You know, because it, and it, it could manifest in this similar way. This is a, a similar kind of story that we hear about, say, a Christian science parents, Christian scientist parents who let their son writhe in pain on the couch for five or six days and then die of an obstructed bowel, right? Yeah. Um, like, which is, which was a case. Uh, how did the, how did the, how does that possibly happen? I mean, you need to be so embedded in your belief system that you could let that happen. This, you know, Bob's point made me think of something else too. But it's like you live, we live in the same world together. 
she's she had access to the same TV shows that I do, the same you know internet sites that I do. All the information is out there. Was there nothing in her mind that told her that she should be trying the other avenue of you know quote unquote medicine when the homeopathy didn't work? Jay, I think in a very real sense, she does not live in the same world that you and I do. She lives in a very different world. You know, one shaped by a completely different set of assumptions and presuppositions and perspectives and belief systems, you know. Uh, so it's our job as skeptics to try to get to these people. You know, yeah. I would, not not her so much. I'd be more interested in get. you know, I wish that her son lived and he's, you know, 13 or 14 and listening to our podcast and reading our blogs. That, But th- this is what we can do, you know, not just to us, the SGU, but to anyone listening to our show is try to spread – the understanding of critical thinking yeah. and science for exactly this reason. That kid is dead. There is no coming back. That's right, Jay. You know, the thing is, every single time, 100% of the time, I am interviewed about alternative medicine or just having a casual conversation about it with somebody who's not already a skeptic or doesn't understand what it's about. I get asked the question, what's the harm? Yep, that's isn't the question. Th- it's the question. Isn't this just benign who cares if it's placebo? It's touchy-feely. It makes them feel better. Who cares? What's the harm? This is the harm. Mm-hmm. It all cultivates a belief in nonsense, in medical nonsense, distrust in science-based medicine. This is what it leads to. This is one dramatic example, but to some degree or another, to some degree or another, this is exactly what it leads to. This is the harm, and we have to make sure that we make that point very clearly because, you know, the, uh, otherwise there's going to be more Ryans out there. Enough downer news items for now. I'm not saying we don't have more coming, but... Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that is what that Cheer says. That's <laughs> literally what that says. Bob, <laughs> you're going to give us a straight-up news item about capturing lost energy. Yes. Um, but actually, this one's a bit of a bummer, too. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> Duke University researchers announced recently that they created a microwave energy harvester that's six times more efficient uh, than previous versions, making it as efficient as photovoltaic panels. Now, not only that, using metamaterials, uh, which we've talked about before, it can also harvest Wi-Fi signals, satellite signals, and even sound. Now, I've I've always loved the idea of energy har- harvesters, mainly because it seems like they were they'd be very helpful. During the zombie apocalypse, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but there's a problem, though. The science say, says these devices couldn't be very useful at all. But ultimately, though, it looks like we've got another case of terrible science reporting. And not only that, every article I read, and I read probably half a dozen articles, and they were different. They weren't just copy and paste like you like you so often see. There were there were distinct articles written by somebody. Every one made no mention. They just blindly just reported. You know, what was, uh, what people were saying and they didn't look at it critically at all. So what they did, they used fiberglass and copper conductor, conductors wired to a circuit board to create this like five cell array made of metamaterial. Now, the metamaterials, if, if you remember, they're engineered structures that can capture wave energy, right? And manipulate it in wonderful ways like making invisibility cloaks. Um, with this setup, they were able to increase the efficiency from six to 10% all the way up to 37%. Uh, which is a pretty dramatic increase. And that, of course, puts it into the efficiency realm 
of modern photovoltaics. Now they uh, they said they they said they generated 7.6 volts from microwaves, and they compared that to the five volts for a normal USB, and uh, and that seems pretty impressive, doesn't it? Then they went on to what you know what they said they could do with this stuff. So they said we could coat a ceiling with metamaterial and recover wi- Wi-Fi signals that would otherwise be lost. People could harvest energy from nearby cell towers instead of using an outlet. And uh, the best, though, is the claim that by adding some of this metamaterial to your cell phone, you can charge it wirelessly when it's not in use. Now, that all sounds kind of superficial, superficially reasonable, doesn't it? Uh, but the bottom line to all of this is that the wireless energy available to this and similar devices is minuscule. It's incredibly, incredibly tiny. So a, a 30% efficiency rating, therefore, is kind of beside the point, right? Even 100% would not be useful. Or put another way, it would suck. It, it makes no difference. Make it 110% efficient. Why it really is that? It really wouldn't matter. Because say we had 100% efficient photovoltaic panels. But what if the only light hitting the Earth was from one star a light year away? Would you care how efficient it was? Does efficiency is irrelevant when you're being very efficient with something that's minuscule. So not only is the available ambient energy tiny, there's another pesky little problem that makes it worse. The inverse square law. Power drops is the square of the distance. You double the distance and the power drops four times. So that makes this, you know, this p- pathetic amount of energy you could harvest even worse. So if you want to charge uh, your cell phone with a typical, you know, Wi-Fi router, Put your put your phone a meter away, and it could take seventy thousand hours to charge to charge your phone. But Bob, wouldn't the battery degrade? You know, you would be losing charge faster than it's receiving charge. Right, because- right. Some people even questioned that it could actually gain on on how it's used, even if it was in you know your utmost you know sleep mode. You know, even then. It probably wouldn't even help. Now, you, you might say that, hey, they generated 7.6 volts, which is more than a USB. Yes, but the current they could generate is tiny compared to a USB. And so that to, that's an incredibly important thing to leave out. And it just, um, I don't know. I don't know if, if they were just trying to uh, get more funding. or I mean, I, I know a lot of the scientists must have realized this. So what about using sound then? They said they could harvest sound. Well, imagine... You, you've got a super siren emitting 128 decibels, which is like a jackhammer right next to you. So that's loud as hell. That you, you you would think, all right, that that's a lot of sound that is potentially harvestable. But um, even if your phone were 100% efficient, which is a huge gimme, we're talking only 10 watts per square me- meter. And then if you actually factor in, you know, reality and real world efficiency, we're talking maybe 0.1 to 0.01 watts per square meter. So then to put that into context, solar radiation hitting the ground is a thousand watts per square meter. That's 10,000 to 100,000 times what we can get from sound. So yeah, but look how efficient our microwave and sound harvester is. So what? Is this good for anything? One thing I could come up with is that um, if you had these sensors that were extremely low power, right? They can't, they can't use a lot of power because there's not much to be had. Um, they'd have to be extremely low power and they'd have to be in the Arctic Circle and they need to operate in the dark. And then these things would be great. Well, how about just one, one last uh, possibility? What if you're not just harvesting ambient energy? You have something which is designed to produce energy that could then be harvested by one of these devices. So let's say uh, something that needs to, to work in the dark would be a small 
implantable machine, something that's going to be inside your body. And you don't want to have a wire going outside your body to a battery. We need to figure out some way to charge that machine up. Now, they're already working on ways of, of harvesting your biological energy. You know, if you're breathing right. and your heart's beating and you're moving, that's probably always going to be a better way to charge it. But is it, would it be possible to like aim a, a focused radio beam at a device that could, would then harvest a significant percentage of that energy? Is that even a feasible idea? I, I think it's feasible. I like the idea of something internal like that that's um, that could feed off of the ambient energy. The one question would be, I mean, how consistent is that source? Mm-hmm. And um, the, the the sensors uh, in your body would have to be very very low power still. And e- even if you focused it, Steve, I think you would um, you would still be amazed at how little energy could actually yeah. be, be used off of that. But sure, I think for you know for focused applications, I think. Uh, that might that might be doable. You know, you'd have to have a powerful source, and you'd have to have it close to the body. And who knows what you know that kind that would even do to the body. But yeah, I guess it would be doable, but not for something that would be long term or or anything that that you that you know that's yeah. Before we go on to the next news item, let's take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsor. Your business depends on software. All your apps, your databases, your social media, your account management, your e-commerce. Everything you do in business relies on software. So the very last thing you need is a problem with it. New Relics Software Analytics give you powerful, real-time insights into your software so you can spot problems and fix them before they become big business-stopping problems. Plus, you got web and mobile apps, right? Of course you do. You can't be in business today without a strong presence online. So let me ask you, do you have any clue how they're performing? With New Relic, you can stop wondering and start knowing how your apps are performing because New Relic gives you full code-level visibility into their real-time performance. Give New Relic a try free for 30 days. Go to newrelic.com slash radio. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash radio. Newrelic.com slash radio. All right, the next news item is a mixture of good and bad news, but it it includes... (laughs) A call to action. It's bad news because it's about a notorious cancer quack. You guys know about Dr. Stanislaw Berzinski? Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, your cancer, he says. Let me give the quick background on this guy. So he has been selling for 37 years. 37. Eight, 37 years. A chemical That's 37 years that too he, long. Yeah, absolutely. That he calls anti-neoplastins. Sounds impressive. Yeah, that he claims can treat many forms of cancer. Originally, this was a protein that was isolated from uh, urine and blood and then later just manufactured in, in, a, in a chemical lab. There's nothing really... Uh, even interesting about this uh, this protein, it, it, and there's no reason to think or clinical evidence that it does anything, that it works. But he's selling it as a natural, effective cancer cure, cancer treatment. When even if it did work, it would be chemotherapy. You know what I mean? So it, he's marketing this as some kind of natural treatment when it's basically a drug that has lots of side effects. It's chemotherapy, but it's chemotherapy that hasn't been demonstrated to work. So he's essentially has been making lots of money off of desperate people selling them expensive chemotherapy that's not not FDA approved that hasn't been studied properly 
He is not an oncologist. He's never had any formal training in oncology, just an internist. So he's really practicing outside of his area of expertise. And he's, I don't know, for some reason, he's got he's gotten away with doing this for years. At some point, the FDA did go after him. This was um, in the in the 90s. And, you know, he, he was indicted, you know, and was investigated. And it looked like the FDA was, was going to do their job and shut him down. And then from somewhere came political pressure on the FDA, you know, essentially – what we don't, you know, we suspect that that Senator Dan Barton was involved because he's been sort of a fan of alternative medicine and a defender of Brzezinski. But the, the suspicion is that essentially the director of the FDA was gotten to a back room somewhere, and then they they put the pressure on him to shut down the investigation. And in fact, the FDA not only not shut down their their prosecution of Brzezinski, they did a 180 and they started working with him. To, to help him keep in business. Is wow. that unbelievable? They essentially wow. ginned up this idea that they're go- that Brzezinski can continue to give antineoplastons in the context of clinical trials. So for the last 17 years, Brzezinski has basically been doing fake clinical trials just as a ruse to do to charge patients for his antineoplastons. He's still charging them, which is unethical. It's disgusting. He, yeah, I mean like oh a, a, a cancer patient could pay over $100,000 to get it, cash to get his Whoa. treatments because insurance companies don't cover it for for being in a worthless clinical trial. In the last 17 years of doing these bogus clinical trials and these are just like the preliminary clinical trials, he actually hasn't published a single completed phase 2 clinical trial. He's only published a few worthless, you know, basic science reports and case series and it's been a farce. The whole thing has been a farce. While he's raking in the millions and again, you know, selling conspiracy theories about his being how he's being persecuted by the man, you know, by the powers that be, yeah. and how, you know, big pharma and evil doc, other other evil doctors are trying to keep the cure, the cancer cure, from patients, and he's just this maverick doctor trying to cure patients. Meanwhile, he's making millions and not doing any science, charging patients for what is at best an experimental treatment, and at worst is snake oil. The update to all of this is that the FDA seems to be swinging back, uh, maybe because the political pressure has been lifted, has been swinging back towards going after Brzezinski. They investigated his clinic, his IRB. So the IRB is an institutional review board. And in order to do any clinical research that's either funded by the government or that um, is for on the path to getting FDA approval – you have to have an IRB whose main purpose is to protect subjects in human research, uh, to protect their interests. But he has an IRB with his own people on it, and it, they haven't been doing their job. So mm-hmm. they, the FDA investigated this a few years ago, and there was a long list. Uh, and if you know, and David Gorsky has been following the story very closely on science-based medicine. So you could read if you just search on that on science-based medicine for those articles from Brzezinski, you'll see his um, and his recent ones will have links to the relevant older ones as well. Um, where long list of of like failing to get proper consent, failing to. Um, protect the interests of children in the studies, failing to properly report adverse events, 
failing to properly categorize responses, destroying original data like MRI scans. So a long list of egregious research violations, like the kind of violations that would shut down not only a lab, but a university. If a university IRB were doing this and the FDA got wind of it, I mean, they would say, you're not getting any federal money until you straighten this shit out. You know what I mean? Which would shut down the re- you know, any federal research at a university, which would basically shut down the research at the university. Um, it's unbelievable that he got away with this. And so he was supposed to, in the last few years, fix these deficiencies. He basically hasn't. The FDA now has just come out with their updated report, again, citing a long list of violations of him and of his IRB. And the hope is that they're going to do something about it this time around. But who knows? I mean, Brzezinski always seems to slither away because slither. of from from political pressure that he manages to pull out of his ass from somewhere. And we we seen it seems like this is always the case, though. I mean, yeah. we always see the FDA making some sort of report about something like like let's say uh, Kevin Trudeau or someone. Yeah, that was uh, the FTC. The FTC with Kevin. Trudeau. Oh, right. You're right. Um, but okay, so uh, you know, vitamins and uh, yeah. you know health claims of of things like airborne. I saw an ad just today for airborne online that was like, "Does your immune system need a boost? Take airborne." Yeah. And it's like, yeah. how does this company still exist? Because Congress has hamstrung the FDA on purpose to to, to allow yeah. this to happen. That's why. It's, it's not the a, FDA's the fault. FDA, I mean, it just seems like the FDA is just not doing their job. And I understand yeah. that there are They're not being allowed to do their job. Why. It's yeah. just yeah. infuriating. To a degree. Yeah, it is infuriating. All right. But this is what we're going to do about it. Okay. So what now the, we have the FDA, right, the FDA put out their report with a shocking list of violations on this guy who has been exploiting children. And the reason the reason why the FDA may have been awakened from their slumber is because of a recent death of a child receiving Brzezinski's treatment. And the child died of hypernatremia. Sodium level was dangerously high, which is a known side effect of Brzezinski's chemotherapy. So it's almost certainly an adverse reaction from the treatment. Um, so a dead, dead kid with cancer. That's the kind of thing that, you know, wakes the FDA up. So we have a unique opportunity, maybe, to seize upon the FDA's report of their investigation. There also was a recent USA Today article, which is very critical of Brzezinski, that, um, David Gorski was, uh, instrumental in. And, and also Robert Blazowitz, who's also the other skeptic who's been working on this a lot. Um, so they, those two deserve a lot of credit for, for keeping the pressure up on Brzezinski. But so what we're doing now is we're going to launch an all out skeptical assault on Brzezinski. And this is yeah. very specifically what you can do. We'll have the link on the show notes, but you can go to thehoustoncancerquack.com. The HoustonCancerQuack.com. And on there, you will find detailed instructions for how to write to your representative in the House and Senate, documents from the FDA that you could send them, the way to personalize it, find out if they have that either themselves or someone in their family has cancer, for example. How, how they'll give you a, a sample um, letter, but you can ways also suggestions on how to, how to personalize it. And um, you need to follow up, do a follow-up phone call. So 
we have over 100,000 people listening to our show, even if a small percentage of them, um, those that are in the U- U.S., follow up with their representative or their senator and ask for an, a congressional investigation of Brzezinski. Maybe we could finally bring political pressure to bear from the other direction and finally shut this guy down. He's been doing this for 37 years. It is an absolute scandal. Yeah, it represents jail. a complete failure of our regulatory system that this guy has charged people $100,000 or more for bogus therapy while doing fake research, not publishing anything usable, violating many regulations that are supposed to be there to protect people who are the subject of legitimate research. And he and he's been able to do this with very little inconvenience from the regulatory agencies. Occasionally, he's got to defend himself in Texas or from the FDA, but he's he's done fine. Unbelievable. So let's see what we could do from our end to put some political pressure to get this guy shut down once and for all. Let's do it. <sighs> yep. Uh, well, and hey. we'll 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 keep everybody updated if there's any you know updates on this this whole thing. Let's Why talk. does he have a picture of James Von Prague on his website? Oh, wait, that's, that's him. That's him. Never mind. Yeah. yeah. Kind of similar looking guy. Let's talk about something. I know. I know. Yeah, okay. I know. Doctor. He's been on Dr. Oz and Oprah. So they apparently, yeah. uh, you know, don't get me their blessing. Ugh. Don't get me started. All right. More awfulness. Jay, you're going to finish up the news items with a discussion of Comet ISON. Comet ISON. Comets are considered small solar system bodies. And they're made of loose clusters of ice, rocky particles, and dust. But the thing is, their size varies from a few hundred meters to tens of kilometers across. I didn't know that they got that big, or you know, that would be an accurate designation for a comet. When they pass near the sun or any sun, they start to heat up and they start to outgas, similar to Bob in a hot tub. <laughs> but um, bump. Thank you. Oh, we can, and we can see we can see the outgassing <laughs> as either. Something called a coma, which is the the comet's gas that's surrounding it, kind of like a sphere type shape around it, Halo. or it it looks like a, a tail. You know, this, it has like the gas that it's leaving that's leaving as it passes through an area, and um, and typically the solar wind and the radiation from the nearby star um, is is actually pushing the its uh, gases that it outgasses away from the body of the uh, comet. So anyway, Comet ISON may be ending its million-year trip soon, though, because it is uh, heading towards our sun, and the sun is going to have a head-to-head with it. And typically, the sun wins whenever someone like you know wants to challenge our sun. The sun <laughs> usually just you know throws down with a solar flare. Or, Mostly steering you know, contests, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, he just never gives into up. The sun is never a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So on November twenty-eighth, Thanksgiving to us here in the USA. ISON. And Hanukkah. Yeah, and Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Thanksgiving, Hanukkah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the comet will be at the perihelion. Bob, what do you think the perihelion is? The closest approach. <laughs> right, the closest the closest it will get to the sun that it's orbiting that around. The opposite of aphelion. Thank you. So it's making its way around the sun, and it's going about 48,000 miles per hour. 48,000. How'd you get me on that? And astronomers will be looking to see if it made it all the way around. So it's going behind the sun where we can't see it, and we don't know if it's going to come around slingshot around the other side. And and a lot of people are hoping that it does, because if it does, we are going to get one hell of a show. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It could be really brilliant. So as it whips around... I hope so. 
and when it comes back at us, the trajectory would put it going over the North Pole. And man, its tail is going to be dramatically bigger because of how much it would have melted, I guess. Like, you know, it's going to, its properties are going to change because of how close it's going to get to the sun. And that, that is something that everybody needs to spend the time to figure out if they can see it wherever they are when it's happening. And that's going to happen, um, the, within the first two weeks of December. So it's coming up soon. We're, we're going to know very soon whether or not it made it around. And then we've got to keep our eyes open if it does, because you just don't want to miss this. You'll never see it again in your lifetime. Most humans don't get to see stuff like this. Out at the Oort cloud where Bob hangs out when he's not on the show, there are billions of <laughs> objects out there. And that's approximately 100,000 astronomical units away from us. And in case you didn't know, an AU is the average distance from the Earth to the sun. So that is amazingly AU. far away. And it's incredibly rare that something from that far out actually comes this far into the solar system. You know how rare it is, Jay? It never happened. This, 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 this is the first observed comet directly yeah. from the Oort cloud. Okay. It, it, it may have happened before, but... We don't first know. observed. It's the first it certainly observed. did happen before, but yeah. Okay, I'm recording a quick update uh, just before the show goes up. So I'm recording this Saturday morning, November 30th. The last update I am seeing about Comet ISON is from 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And unfortunately, it appears that, that Comet ISON has been destroyed by its close approach to the sun. Uh, there does not appear to be an actual comet emerging uh, on the other side. There is a debris field, and that's about it, an expanding cloud of dust, which is all that remains of ISON, but no comet. So unfortunately, we are likely not going to get the uh, the hoped-for show uh, when the comet whips around. And as suspected, the comet simply grazed too close to the sun and was burned up in the process. It's dead. The comet's dead. It was sold into sex slavery in Japan. <laughs> That'll be $800, kid. Somebody's f***ing that comet. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Uh, I see a lot of ice. <laughs> Sorry. All right, Evan. Get us up to date on who's that noisy. A couple of who's that noisies to get up to date on from... Uh, few episodes ago, episode 435 specifically. This is a century of biology. Physics has had its good time, but now it's going to be biology. Gentleman by the name of E.O. Wilson, uh, Edward Osborne Wilson. You ever heard of him? Oh, yeah. Entomologist. Sure. Yep. Consilience. Very good book. research theorist, naturalist, and uh, enemy of Stephen Jay Gould, apparently. They had some differences. In any case, he's the father of sociobiology. Tons of correct answers. I didn't realize so many people yeah, would recognize him. He's got a very recognizable voice. voice. Yeah. Apparently he does. And of, of the hundreds of people who guessed correctly, uh, Wayne, listener Wayne Heller, your name was drawn. Congratulations. You're going into the pool for the grand prize at the end of the year. Now moving on. Episode number 436 from last week. I'm going to go ahead and play for you that noise. Here we go. has the theme from the new Twin Peaks remake. <laughs> Did sound sort of David Lynch-ish. Ever heard of the Micronium? No. 
A musical instrument fabricated from silicon using microelectromechanical systems or MEMS technology. MEMS. It is a uh, micro instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very small instrument. In fact, apparently. Like Jay's uh, penis. <laughs> <laughs> what a random insult that one. The first musical instrument with dimensions measured in mere micrometers. Wow. And that that produces audible tones is the key there. Ah, uh, that produces audible tones. They're still working on the world's smallest violin. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're getting they're close. Uh, would you believe that somebody got that correct? I wouldn't. Wow, listener Greg Malavuk. So, Greg, you are Congrats. the sole winner of last week's. Who's that noisy? Congratulations. What do you got for this week? All right, this week, let's do it. Even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, agreeing with most of the scientific community, says that it puts very little trust in any attribution of hurricanes to global warming. I have no idea. Hey, we recently talked about hurricanes and global warming and all that good stuff, right? Yeah, with the typhoon in the uh, Philippines. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address. Or go ahead and post on the forums, sguforums.com. And as I say every week, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, Good luck, everyone. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week's three news items? Yes, let's do it. Yeah, for Herr Doctor. Here we go. Item number one. A new study examines South African dogs bred and trained to defend livestock that are capable of fighting and killing cheetahs and other large predators. Item number two, a recent systematic review finds that people who suffer from food allergies are more likely to die from murder than from their allergy. And item number three, a new computer simulation suggests that a major component of the Permian extinction 252 million years ago was sulfuric acid rain with a pH of 2. Bob, go first. South African dogs killing cheetahs. What? The, what the hell are cheetahs? Oh, South Africa, not South America. Um, <laughs> what the hell are cheetahs doing in South Africa? <laughs> he was so sure he had this one nailed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking South America, but clearly it says South Africa. Damn, my first thought was like bullshit, but uh, I've seen some pretty nasty dogs that that are that if they are specifically trained, bred and trained. That's a that's a potent combination. I, I can kind of see that. Food allergies are more likely to die from moita than from the their allergy. Yeah, I just don't think there's a lot of people that actually die from a food food allergy. They're usually so you know either you know they don't ne- wouldn't necessarily die if they had it, and they're pretty careful about it. Permian extinction. I mean that was the that was the big extinction. Was I mean that wasn't that like ninety percent. That was um, the big one. Yeah, that was like I think the the worst one that we know of. I mean, it was yeah, ninety percent. I think that's an accurate memory. That's insane. Yeah, I'm gonna go with that one. I'll I'll say the the acid rain is the fiction. Yeah, it's a fiction. Whatever. Okay, Evan. These are, these are good, man. <laughs> Didn't read any of those. Well, South African dogs bred and trained to defend livestock, uh, capable of fighting and killing cheetahs. Um, well, okay, they might be capable of it, but mm, I don't know. And how did they test that exactly? I mean, 
you don't exactly just, well, let's release these dogs on some cheetahs and see what happens. I don't, how do, how do they really, aren't cheetahs protected or something? Yeah, I'm having a tough time with this one. How do they catch the cheetahs too? I mean, won't the cheetah just run away? A uh, problem with that one. So number two, um, people who suffer from food allergies are more likely to die from murder. Seems counterintuitive. Bob brought up a good point. People with food allergies are very careful. More likely, though, to die from murder. That was tricky, too. The last one, now, they did a computer simulation suggesting a major component of this extinction from a quarter billion years ago was sulfuric acid. How did all those things thrive in an environment that would have been sufficient to produce sulfuric acid rain? I mean, that certainly didn't happen overnight. It's not like some comet or a meteor that hit the earth and caused an instant extinction. This one's different. So, ah, I have to put my nickel down. Yes, you do. This cheetah one is really bothering me, but I'm going to go with Bob, and I can't see how the sulfuric acid way back when uh, could have been so prevalent, and therefore I'll say that one's fiction, sulfuric acid's fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Really? That's the only one that I thought... (laughs) Immediately was true because I thought that that was a known thing. I'm confused entirely by this, but I thought that that, like, it makes sense to me and fits in with what I thought I knew about, with what little I already knew about the Permian extinction, which is really not a lot. Dogs bred to defend livestock are capable of fighting and killing cheetahs and other large predators. See, this is, this is tricky because I do think that they would be capable of doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it on the regular though. I think for the most part, they would be capable of scaring off. I think the cheetahs don't have, like cheetahs one thing is chasing after something and taking it down. They're very fast. They're not built to fight head to head with something. They're built to chase something down and rip out its jugular. So if they see another carnivore hanging out, then they're more likely to not even go near it. So I'm confused by this one because while I think that a dog would be capable of fighting and killing a cheetah and other large predators, I don't think it's necessarily something that happens often. And then people who suffer from food allergies more likely to die from murder than from their allergy. This makes perfect sense because picture you know people serving like skeptics serving a dinner at a dinner party and somebody's like uh i can't eat this because i have a gluten allergy and then like they just snap and they're like no you don't it's just a fad and then they just murder them (laughs) and then it it turns out they really did have a gluten allergy and (laughs) my bad Sorry. So this makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> but also, also Bob and Evan's point about people with food allergies being very careful not to eat their food. That also makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go with the dogs. I'm going to go with the dogs because I don't know. I feel like that one's, there's something tricky going on there and I don't, I don't like it. Okay, Jay. Okay. The first one about the dogs being bred and trained to defend the livestock and fighting animals that seem to, you know, significantly outclass them. Here's a couple of points that I don't think any of you guys said. One is the word dogs is plural. You get 10 trained dogs, they can take down a cheetah. If the cheetah gets in there in the mix, I wouldn't doubt it for a second. 
So right out of the gate, I'm going to say that one is plausible and probably true. Uh, the second one about the people who suffer from food allergies are more likely to die from murder than from their allergy. Okay, so we're making the point here that you're more likely to die from murder than the thing you're deadly allergic to or so on some spectrum of being allergic. But sure, it ha- your allergy has to be so bad that it can kill you. So that's a marker right there. So I, I could see that. I could see that as being true. Oh, they're more likely to die from murder than no. <laughs> South no, America. <laughs> no, that's not true. That one, that one, that's it. That one is false. Uh, All yeah, right. That one is the, well, that's definitive. That one's the fake. All right. We'll take this in reverse order. We'll start with number three. A new computer simulation suggests that a major component of the Permian extinction 250 million years ago was sulfuric acid rain with a pH of two. Bob and Evan think this one is the fiction. Jay and Rebecca thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Ha ha. Yeah, Thank you. pH of two. That's like sulfuric. lemon juice. It's exactly <laughs> like lemon juice. Who says in that? Fact, in fact, <laughs> every story I read about this used the word lemon juice to what? explain it. Lemon juice rain. <laughs> lemon juice spike. Lemon it, it's a killer. It kills them dead. So lemon, lemon, so lemon juice killed all, 90% of all animals. Well, I don't think it was so delicious, probably. What about this? It, it did show that it was solely responsible for the mass extinction, just that it was a major component. But, um, yeah, major. Yeah. So the Permian <laughs> extinction the killed 95% of all marine life, 70% of all land families became extinct, uh, and was the only major mass extinction of insects. Which is interesting. Ooh. Um, there was probably something different about this one. Uh, so, but we don't Ultimate know exactly what bomb. happened. You know, the, I don't, the, I don't think a meteor impact is the leading hypothesis, but I, neither do I think it's been completely ruled out. A gamma ray burst. Another possibility is that <laughs> it was just increased massive volcanism, specifically in the Siberian traps. I blame Spock. So what the researchers did was look at the, likely uh, emissions of volcanoes and then in that area and then said well what would that have done to the environment and one of the things that that came out was that the sulfur that the sulfur pumped into the atmosphere would have rained back down as sulfuric acid with a pH of 2 and that that would have been sufficient to cause mass damage to plant life sure. probably would have been pretty nasty for insects as well so maybe sounds explains- legitimate to me huh rebecca well yeah. Yeah, I I approve oh, of this. But it's fine. Did you, you didn't you really I guess you didn't read it, Bob. It's so funny that you said no. lemon juice. Every site going with the lemon juice rain. Um all right, let's go to number two. Uh, a recent systematic review finds that people who suffer from food allergies are more likely to die from murder than from their allergy. Jay is all alone in thinking that this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science, and this one is science. <gasps> oh, is it because they're murdered at dinner parties? <laughs> the, the article strangely was silent on that particular detail. Um, but uh, crap, I should have stuck with that. Yeah, should have gone with your gut instead of the crowd, Evan. Uh, I hate the crowd. What Evan. do you think the what no do you think no the offense. incidence the incidence of <laughs> food allergic people dying of anaphylaxis from their food allergy? What do you think that is? The percentage uh, that do die. Percentage of people. Yeah, well, you know, it's not as a percentage, but per million. Oh, um, five in a year, ten, per few, year. Hun- few oh, hundred. Oh, it's one point three to two point seven. 
ah, I win by Price is Right rules. For adults. <laughs> and in children, in 0 to 19, it was 3.25. Wow. Um, yeah, so just, huh. yeah, like basically two to three people per million per year die of their food allergy because they're really careful. Murder, it depends on whether you're talking about the U.S. or Europe, but um, that's more that that was higher, the the, the uh, especially for uh, the U.S. That that was more like uh, in the U.S. The rate of murder among children was something between one and in ten thousand and one in a hundred thousand. In Europe, it was a little bit over one in a hundred thousand. Uh, very similar to death by fire, death due to lightning, hmm. one in ten million. Shocking. Oh and the boy. Food oh, no, oh. we got it. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Which means a new study examined South African dogs bred and trained to defend livestock that are capable of fighting and killing cheetahs and other large predators is the fiction. Mm-hmm. Did you read this one, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. No. Okay. But Have this I is read. based upon a study. They, uh, looking at guard dogs, which are being used in South Africa to protect livestock from cheetahs and other large predators. And what they found was that the use of these guard dogs reduces the death to cheetahs oh. and protects the livestock. So it's a win-win. Oh, is it because this way farmers aren't shooting cheetahs? Exactly. Because ah. when cheetahs kill livestock, farmers will then revenge kill the cheetahs to right. protect their livestock. And this way, the dogs will keep them at bay, protecting the livestock and protecting the endangered cheetahs. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You said win-win. I thought cheetahs never win. <laughs> oh, my God. God. You are on fire tonight. That was pretty good, Ev. I am? No, fine. I'm sorry. What I meant was I you should be set on fire tonight. It's <laughs> 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 horrible puns. That's very kind. Thank you very much. But it is cool to think of dogs guarding livestock from cheetahs. But, yeah, I don't. they're not chasing them down and killing them. They're just scaring them off. All right. Well, you know, uh, before we go to the quote and the close of the show, we do want to mention that – we finally updated the website to include gift membership in the SGU. Mm. And yeah. just in time for gift-giving season. What are the chances? What are the odds? Very good, actually. So also um, annual. You can have an annual recurring membership in addition to a monthly recurring membership, and you can give either kind as a gift to someone else, the gift of skepticism. That's the gift They will not only get the membership, they'll be able to sign on and make their own password so they can get access to our ad-free versions of the show and all of our premium content. Um, they will get a personalized message from the SGU informing them of your generous gift. You can go in and take a look at the different specials that we have running right now. Right now, Gary Kazeel has offered to do some illustrations for people that donate annually. So go to the members page, take a look. These make great gifts. You might have someone uh, that you want to get a special present for this year, uh, for the holidays or for their birthday. Just take a look. I think you'll really be impressed with Gary's work. And if you do the annual membership, you can get the card right away. You won't have to wait until you complete your first year of membership. And to further support the SGU and also, you know, buy things that you might want, we have some great t-shirts in the SGU store. So go take a look. These make great presents. And SGU branded keychains and pens as well. The pens. You love the pens, Steve. (laughs) Steve said, I want to do pens. I'm like, who's going to buy a pen? Well, people like the pens. Take a look at all the lovely stuff that you could buy for this holiday season. And I'll also remind people that I have two courses for the teaching company, one called Medical Myths, the other one, Your Deceptive Mind, which is essentially a primer on skepticism. 
um, available from the teaching company. You can just search for me there and find my two courses. Also, I understand they make lovely gifts. And while we're on the subject of gifts, you can also go to skepticalrobot.com and find some awesome skeptic-y, science-y, nerdy presents. Nerdy like, presents are always good. Like Krampus ornaments. And one final thing, if you are doing any of your holiday shopping through Amazon.com, you can click through to Amazon from the link on our website. And when you do so, the SGU will get support. This is a painless way for you to support the SGU just by doing the shopping you're going to do anyway. All right. Well, Jay, give us a quote to close out the show. I should have done this quote last week or read this quote last week. It's a quote from JFK. And the quote is, the great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast to the cliches of our forebears. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. And that was sent in by a listener named Nicholas Tiller. And of course, that is JFK. Thank you, Jay. And thank all of you guys for joining me again this week. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Anytime. Have a, yes. Happy. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. You too. And Hanukkah. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.